0: We're going to read the Word of God this morning from Colossians 1. I think you know that the books of Colossians and Ephesians are very similar, and I hope you'll notice some of the similarities between what we've been studying in Ephesians 1 and the Word of God here in Colossians 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae, grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof we heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you, as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the spirit. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long long-suffering, with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins." By him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you, that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which hath been from ages and from which hath been hid from ages and from generations, that now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Turning then to Ephesians 1, we continue our study this morning of verses 15 through 23 we're going to be focusing this morning, especially on verses 15 through 18. So I will read those verses now. Whereunto, wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. The great model prayer of Scripture is, of course, the Lord's Prayer. Jesus gave that prayer to his disciples and to us in answer to their request, Lord, teach us to pray. But all the prayers of Scripture are instructive and helpful to us, to God's people everywhere, in the whole business of praying, praying without ceasing as the Apostle Paul has it elsewhere. The Word of God here in the last part of Ephesians 1 is especially instructive and helpful in that part of our prayers which concerns others. You have a marvelous example here of the need to pray for one another, but also of how we are to do that, following the example of the Apostle Paul. And it's especially to the last part of verse 15, and what follows through verse 18 that I call your attention this morning with that in mind that this is also a model prayer and a help to us in our praying. We talked last week about Paul's thanks for his fellow believers, focusing especially on verses 15 and the first part of verse 16, now we're going to look at what Paul asks for them in the last part of verse 16 and what follows. want to begin by looking at the reasons why Paul prays for the saints in Ephesus. All of them, let's not forget that. He doesn't pick and choose among the members of the church. He doesn't pray for those whom he liked personally, forgetting to pray for those who had perhaps offended him, or with whom he found it difficult to get along, prays for all of them. Does it make any distinction between them as far as their place and calling in the church and in the world? Prays for children and for slaves as well as for the other members of the church? But he prays for them because he was able to be thankful for them that's the connection between the first part of verse 16 and the second part of verse 15 thankful for them he also prays for them asking God to give them certain blessings and i think you understand the lesson that the word of god sets for us by that if you don't have the right attitude toward a certain member of the church if you're not thankful for them don't Appreciate them and love them as the Apostle Paul did, the saints in Ephesus, then you're probably not going to pray for them either. And that's the connection here between Paul's thanks for the saints and his prayer for the saints. If we do have trouble with a member of the church, struggling to get along with them, at odds with them for one reason or another, then we ought to pray for them. But even then, we would probably find it difficult unless we have the attitude of the Apostle Paul in the first part of verse 16 and are thankful for them not for what they are in themselves. We talked about that last Lord's Day morning. But thankful for them as they are in Christ Jesus. I cease not to give thanks for you, Paul says, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love unto all the saints." He's thankful for them, for the gifts of grace that he sees in them. Doesn't see the same in all of them. To one, God gives a great measure of his grace. To another, he gives in lesser measure. But seeing those Fruits of God's grace, faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints. Paul is thankful for all the members of the Church of Ephesus and goes on to pray for them. Quite a lesson for us. A reminder of the fact, first of all, that our prayers should not be so self-centered that we think only of ourselves. When we pray, reminder of the fact that we pray as members of the body of Christ, you have that in the Lord's Prayer. It's not my Father in heaven, but our Father in heaven. But a reminder, too, of the importance of looking at God's people As Christ himself looks at them. That's what Paul is doing here and that's what makes it possible for him to pray for them for all of them. You'll remember that last Lord's Day morning we talked about that that this is not only Paul's prayer But as part of the inspired word of God, it's the prayer of Christ himself through his spirit. This is his attitude towards the members of the church. And this is the prayer that he offers on our behalf. And that's Paul's reason and ought to be ours also for following his example in praying for the saints. So, that first of all, that's the first reason why this prayer is a model prayer as much as the Lord's Prayer. The way in which God's Word teaches us to pray. But the Apostle Paul has a deeper reason for praying for the members of the church of Ephesus. He does that out of his love for them. He does that following the example of Christ who prays through him by the word of God in this passage. But he prays for the believers too. For the glory of God. That's why you have all those. Names of God in the passage. Especially in verse 17. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ. The father of glory. It's not just. Praying out of compassion or love whatever he may have felt toward the saints in Ephesus but praying with the glory of God in mind father of glory means the glorious father and he's thinking back then too to what He's been teaching in the first part of this chapter about the fact that God chose his people, predestinated them unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, seeing the fruits of grace in them. He remembers that that's all for the glory of God. It's thinking back to what he said about the redemptive work of Christ, all of which is also for the praise of his glory. Thinking back to what he said about the work of the Spirit in verses 14 and 15, that too he's told us was for the praise of the glory of God and seeing the fruits of grace, he prays with the glory of God in mind. Even when he asks that the believers in Ephesus may have hope and may know the riches of the glory of their inheritance, he puts that word, His, in the hope of His calling and the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. And I can't can't emphasize enough what an important pattern that is for our praying You must pray for one another, and it's good that you and I do that out of love, compassion, feeling, thankfulness for one another. But your great request must be that your fellow believers serve the glory of God. And in asking different things for them, peace for one, healing for another, help for this one, you must ask that with the glory of God in mind. And you have to do that. I hope you understand that. Because otherwise you're going to be frustrated in your prayers. Going to think that there's no answer to your prayers. The prayers that you offer for your fellow believers. Because sometimes for his own glory, God doesn't give them what you ask. Or give something different from what you've asked for them. Think of those who are here with you this morning. In many cases, we know what we would ask first of all for them. But what if God doesn't give it? Are you going to to assume them that God didn't hear your prayer? That he doesn't care about them? That he's forgotten their needs? Not if you pray as Paul does here. With the glory of God in mind. Then you'll be able to say, however God answers your prayers on behalf of those who are here with you this morning, however he answered those prayers, that his will is good and must be done. You see? So not only out of love and thankfulness for his fellow believers, but with an eye on the glory of God, Paul says, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. That's the first thing. But we need to notice too what it is God what it is God teaches Paul to pray for here and teaches us to pray for. And that I'm sure is not what we would expect. Think of praying for your brothers and sisters here. You probably have prayed for them. You know what you've asked for them. But you probably didn't ask, maybe didn't ask, for the great, thing that the Apostle Paul asks for here. And that's the knowledge of God. Give them the knowledge of God. I don't mean that we shouldn't pray for all those other things. Patience. In the case of a fellow believer who's being severely tried, trust, an increase, growth in grace, and in living as a Christian, being able by the grace of God to put away certain sins that trouble a fellow believer. We should pray for those things. Paul prays, first of all and above all, that they may know God. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. He prays as Jesus prays in... John 17, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That's why Paul prays for the knowledge of God. And you understand that all those other needs depend on that. There's no possibility in the trials I face of being patient and waiting upon God if I don't know who he is as the faithful father of his people, the God who keeps covenant with them, the God who in his faithfulness sent our Lord Jesus Christ into the world to pay for our sins, if I don't see the work of Christ, on the cross, in his resurrection, in his exaltation, as the work of God himself, as a display of the power and grace and faithfulness of God. I'm never going to learn patience. And the same is true of all the other Blessings that you and I need. My faith is weak and faltering for one reason or another. And my prayer is the prayer of that man whose son Jesus healed. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. But how can I even pray that prayer? If I don't know that it's by the power and grace of God that I have faith in the first place, you see, if I think foolishly and wrongly that faith comes from me, that it's an act of my own will as so many believe then the only thing I can really do is say to myself, get a hold of yourself, man. You have to get a hold of yourself and believe, but that doesn't work. but understanding that it's in the power and for the glory of God that we have faith in the first place. I know where to go when my faith is weak, and I know what to ask when my faith is weak. And that's why Paul asks here in his prayer for the Ephesian believers, that they may know God. Know him. That's a very unusual name, you know, as the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as the Father. Of glory. Father, yes, indeed, but Father like no other. Father who is different from all others in his faithfulness, even in his discipline of his children. And the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one to whom our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Prayed, what he prayed for his people and for himself. So, as surprising as that is, and as often missing as that is in the prayers of God's people, that's first. And I say again, let's not forget that this is not only the prayer of the Apostle Paul, but the prayer of Jesus himself. Who did he think of first in his prayers, himself? Us? He too. And that's why this is his prayer as much as Paul's thought first of that great need that we have for the knowledge of God in himself. Read his prayer in John 17 and you'll see that so clearly. Father, glorify thyself. So he prays that we have the knowledge of God. I've said that before in our study of Ephesians, that that's what's lacking in the church world today. If you want proof, open up a hymn book, any hymn book. Beautiful hymns, many of them, beautiful words, many of them, words that stir our souls. But what you will not find in those hymns is the thing that Paul is emphasizing as of first importance here in Ephesians 1, the knowledge of God, as the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and as the Father of glory. And that's why so much of Christianity today is totally at sea, weak, God's people can't seem to find rest and peace for themselves in times of trouble. Many. Many of the members of the church abandoned the faith because they don't know who God is. And so Paul prays for that first of all here. There's a few things that we have to notice about that. Paul emphasizes the fact that that knowledge of God is not just intellectual. It's that kind of knowledge as well, but it's so much more than that. It's the knowledge of one who knows personally and from experience and from fellowship who God is and what he's like and whose life is transformed by that. That's why Paul speaks in verse 18 of enlightenment. It's not just a matter of reading a lot of books. But of coming face to face with the Almighty in such a way that it's almost as though a light goes on in your mind. That's why he speaks of Revelation. God has to do what he does in his word and by the work of his spirit in our hearts. He has to open our eyes and our hearts to that knowledge. Show us who he is. You know Him that way, do you? You people, you know Him because the eyes of your understanding are enlightened and because God has revealed Himself to you, uncovered something of His glory in your presence and in your life. That's what Paul is talking about here. And when he speaks of wisdom, he's speaking of the fact that none of us can possibly come that close to God and know him in that way without our lives being transformed and changed. The way we think, the way we act. The way we do our work, the way we live in all the different relationships of life are changed by this knowledge of God. You could even read verse 18 this way. The eyes of your heart being enlightened. And that gets across even more what the Word of God is teaching us here. Wisdom. Wisdom is that spiritual gift which makes it possible to take what you know and put it into practice. In your work and in your family life or your single life, as the case may be. In your life in the church, you use it and put it into practice. Mustn't be like the person, I think I've used that illustration before, but it serves again. Mustn't be like the person who can explain to you in detail how the engine of your car runs. but who can't even get the hood open when his own car won't start. He's got a head full of knowledge, but he has nothing of what the Bible calls wisdom, the ability to apply that knowledge to all of life. And that's what Paul is asking here, not just for instruction in doctrine, for the ability to learn what the Scriptures teach in the way of doctrine, but for that knowledge of God which is precious, life-changing. Enlightening. That more than anything else. Paul also makes it clear that that's a gift of the Spirit. Praise that the Father of glory may give unto you the Spirit of wisdom. And revelation in the knowledge of him, if I may put it this way, that kind of knowledge is so precious and so rare that those who have it, have it only as a gift of the Spirit of God himself. If you have it, that's the only way you have it. And if you see the importance of that knowledge, then you must pray God for the presence and work of his spirit, that you may grow in grace and in knowledge, the knowledge of which the scriptures teach here. So there's that too. And then that reference to the hope of his calling. All the emphasis is still on God, his grace, his glory, his power. But Paul prays to that knowing God, they may have what are, we may have, what are some of the most precious blessings of salvation, hope. Which, as you know in Scripture, is not just some kind of wish for good things in the future, but the unshakable assurance that those things are mine. That having been called by God, called to faith, Called to obedience. I'm a long ways from attaining to perfect faith and perfect obedience. But I've been called to it, and I know I've been called to it. And if I know God, then I have the assurance too that God who called me will finish what he began When first I heard his sovereign call in my heart and life. The hope of his calling. But it comes through the knowledge of God. And the glory of his inheritance. That heavenly inheritance. The glory of which, well, we know so little of it. But what we do know makes everything in this life pale in comparison. Those of you who are younger are going to find that out as you get older that the things that seem so important, so valuable when you were young don't mean much as you get older. Because as you get older you're coming closer and closer to what Paul calls the glory of his inheritance in the saints. It's not just a place in heaven, not just the blessedness of heaven as we know it from the word of God, but it's God in us. God himself is our inheritance dwelling in his people forever and ever. Nothing so sweet, nothing so precious as that. But you have to know who God is to appreciate that inheritance and to know that it's yours and to see all the rest of life in the shadow of that inheritance. All life's troubles, all life's losses, all life's trials and problems and difficulties and disappointments, all the sufferings of this present time are not to be compared, the apostle Paul says, with the glory that shall be revealed in us, the glory of God himself. But to really understand that, you have to think of that inheritance, not in terms of golden streets and gates of pearl, but in terms of God himself. That's the book of Revelation, those last chapters of Revelation. As you remember, I saw no temple therein. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light of it. There shall be no more curse. Thank God for that but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. If that doesn't mean anything to you now, then a professed interest in heaven and in going there is meaningless because that is what heaven is all about. And that's why Paul doesn't just say hope, but the hope of his calling. Doesn't just talk about the inheritance, but the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And all of that, we'll go on to that next, Lord's Day, God willing, all of that rests on what follows. The knowledge of God as it's revealed in Jesus Christ. The knowledge of God's power as we see it in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the chapter ends with that song of praise and worship to him. He is everything. And in this chapter, the foundation of our prayers. I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers that you may know God, and in knowing God, may know the hope of his calling and the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saint, but you have to know the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, which he wrought in Christ, always, 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 Always it comes down to the same thing. To that great call of the gospel that comes to us whenever the gospel is preached. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Believe in him, the son of God. Believe in him, the revelation of the glory of God. And that will be, how does David put it? All your salvation and all your joy. And I leave you with that this morning. Father, bless what we've heard from the word. Use it for our growth in grace. Give us that most precious knowledge of thyself in Jesus Christ. And so give us that wisdom and understanding and enlightenment of which thy word speaks. Forgive us the sins we've committed in speaking of these things. Lead us in the way everlasting the rest of this day and every day. And give us hope and peace through our Saviors, and in his name. Amen.